welcome to Belabored Podcast number 38. I'm your co-host, Michelle Chen, with our other co-host, Sarah Jaffe. We are Descent Magazine's weekly labor podcast on labor issues and workers' rights issues around the world. Like we do every week, we start out with a little bit of uh, news from around the country and the world. Breaking news today, spoiler alert, we recorded this ahead of time, um, so I'm talking to you on Wednesday, is that workers at the Pentagon, among other places in Washington, D.C., that have low-wage jobs that are funded with taxpayer dollars, are out on strike. Good Jobs Nation, which is the Washington, D.C.-based wing of the fast food and low-wage worker movement that we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast, including rather extensively last week with Max Fraser. Um, this particular wing of the movement, though, has focused on drawing attention to the fact that um, about 2 million low-wage workers in this country have jobs that are paid for, at least in part, with our taxpayer dollars. Um, so, like other workers in fast food restaurants like KFC and McDonald's. These are people who are making mostly less than $10 an hour at these chain stores. They just happen to be in, you know, the heart of the Defense Department. Um, this is the seventh strike in seven months by Good Job Nation, and they are specifically targeting President Obama ahead of his State of the Union address, where he's expected, of course, to talk about inequality now that, you know, Americans have admitted that it exists. Um, one photograph that I saw this morning showed the famous Shepard Ferry image of Obama, you know, the one that said hope back in the day, on the signs that the workers were carrying on their march today. Um, so in addition to this, members of Congress, including Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Keith Ellison, have called on Obama to sign an executive order that would raise wages for these workers and some 2 million other government-funded low-wage employees. Did I say 2 million? I think I said that a couple of times. It's kind of a lot. Too many Americans work full-time for federal contractors and live in poverty, says Keith Ellison. Um, the federal government should not lead a race to the bottom by funding jobs that pay poverty wages. We need President Obama to lead the race to the top. God, I hate that phrasing, but whatever. And sign an executive order today to raise the pay of 2 million working Americans. In this case, we talked about the fast food movement and sort of where the direction for some of these... Um, one-day strikes were going extensively last week. In this case, it's sort of interesting because they have a very specific goal. They're calling for this executive order that would raise wages, and it is aimed at least at a supposedly sympathetic president who famously said back in 2007 that he would get on his comfortable shoes and walk a picket line with workers who were having their rights denied rather than the corporate boss. So we shall see if this makes it into the State of the Union right. speech, I guess. And speaking of specific goals, I mean, with a stroke of a pen, literally, this right. is something that he yeah. could change. This is, so. this is something that he could do. The ball is in your court, President Obama, to use another oft-used cliche. <laughs> we have so many cliches all yes, of a sudden. Yes, yes, and we're just getting started. So, um, <laughs> But uh, so uh, the next bit of national labor news, um, just down the street in D.C., um, at the, uh, the National Labor Relations Board is now a officially um, alleging that Walmart illegally retaliated against its employees during the Black Friday strikes of 2012. So you might remember that November, uh, while um, legions of shoppers were lining up outside of Walmart stores, a few hundred Walmart workers, it's estimated, uh, went on strike and walked out and picketed um, to show their defiance um, against Walmart's uh, regime of low wages and poor work conditions. The payback that some workers say they experienced was that they were intimidated, threatened, um, and uh, put under undue surveillance for engaging in those protest actions. Um, as uh, news and documentation about those incidents trickled out, workers got together and began seeking ways to hold Walmart legally accountable for that. And, um, you know, lo and behold, you know, it only took uh, over a year, uh, but the National Labor Relations Board, which has long been known for being very lukewarm and uh, regressive even in its uh, management of various labor disputes um, actually managed to take up this complaint and are now pursuing it. The agency also added that uh, Walmart illegally threatened workers in statements um, in two news broadcasts, so rather audaciously. Um, 
Walmart spokesperson um, in uh, on the CBS Evening News um, actually, you know, said rather uh, imposingly that there would be consequences for workers um, who refuse to show up for work. So, um, you know, this is rather easily avoidable, um, you might say, a labor violation. But now, you know, it's up there on TV for all the world to see. So. In other Walmart news, um, at the same time that this uh, advancement came through the National uh, Labor Relations Board, um, uh, Illinois warehouse workers who are in the Walmart supply chain are also going forward with their lawsuit alleging wage theft and other violations in Southern California warehouses that were operated for Walmart. Um, And this is actually another crucial legal development, potentially, because as we've said before in this podcast, um, Walmart employees have long been engaged in a dispute over how they are classified. Um, Walmart tried to get out of this charge by saying that these were not official Walmart employees, therefore they were not responsible for what went on those uh, warehouses. But um, it it seems to be that they at least have a a legal case to be made. We'll see how this court case pans out. But um, they they are preparing to make a legal case that they are indeed employees of Walmart and can hold Walmart accountable for those violations. So uh, we'll see. In more legal news, last week the news came out that 7,000 teachers laid off by the New Orleans school district after Hurricane Katrina were not given due process and are entitled to restitution. Now, this has been a court case that's been going for a while. Michelle wrote about it, I believe, last year. Um, This was Louisiana's Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously ruling that, yes, the teachers are entitled to a couple of years, perhaps, of back pay. Um, They were placed on unpaid disaster leave after the storm, um, and they essentially were never brought back. So they were not given the opportunity to reapply for these jobs after the school district was essentially restructured after the storm. And of course, since then, you, you may have heard that New Orleans has become a little bit of a laboratory for experiments in school privatization, um, with a younger, whiter teaching force coming in through programs like Teach for America, with sort of ridiculous numbers of charter schools. Um, and of course, this meant that the experienced and often black, often local teachers were shoved out of their jobs. Um, it mass, sounds like it's almost deliberate. Weird how that works. Yeah. Um, mass layoffs, of course, we know are not particularly good for any economy, but even more particularly one that is trying to come back from being, you know, pretty much flattened by a massive storm. You may remember this story if you did not read Michelle's excellent reporting on it from Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, where she takes a look at uh, disaster capitalism. And in this case, of course, the uh, disaster was, or the capitalism part is the people who were profiting off of having the public funding for schools basically turned over to private businesses. And of course, some education activists took to Twitter to call for some of the ed reform groups that have benefited from these 7,000 layoffs to help pay the restitution to the laid-off teachers because, of course, the the scare tactic on this now is going to be that the school district can't pay the teachers restitution because it would bankrupt the district and don't they care about the children because we know this is always the line, right? Because it's always about the children. It's always about the children and the line goes back to well before. Well, I went to school in New Orleans many, well, not that many years ago, but I finished in 2002. And I remember the lines back then were about how terrible the schools were and how awful it was and how, you know, they were just so poor and there was no money and, oh, weird how that works. School districts that don't have a lot of money that are overwhelmingly full of low-income kids have problems. Where have we heard that before? So, in any case, I am fascinated to see where this ends up. Um, I'm sure the school district will appeal again. And uh, we'll see. But yeah. and good luck to the teachers. And if anybody out there listening is one of those teachers or is teaching in the New Orleans public schools, we would love to hear from you. Um, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Send us an email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Yeah, and um, when I last wrote about this, uh, there was an initial uh, ruling that came down in uh, 2012, and uh, at that point, I mean, New Orleans schools were, uh, you know, well into this restructuring process. I mean, you know, pretty much the dust had settled, and yeah. it was amazing that these teachers were still trying to get their lives back on track and still seeking justice oh, yeah. after all these years. Oh yeah, I mean, and you know, like yeah. those kids. I mean, the kids that they originally taught are probably all either in high school, college, or out of school right now. So, yeah. I mean, if you can think about like the 
the long-lasting impacts of the storm um, and, you know, the, the price that's ultimately paid for this really sort of short-term, short-sighted uh, privatization schemes. I mean, yeah. the, it's, it's really pretty amazing. So um, anyway, um, so we'll have links to uh, my In These Times article and the other coverage of this. Uh, stay tuned. And so taking a break from the legal news, uh, before we jump <laughs> back into more legal news in, the, in our main discussion, Oxfam came out with a report just in time for the uh, uh, World Conference of Rich People in Davos, Switzerland, um, <laughs> about global inequality. Yes. Oh, by the way, that's one of the themes at this year's uh, Davos, because, you know, who's more you know, better qualified to talk about inequality than a bunch of super ultra wealthy people. Sadly, they're not volunteering to pay more taxes. Right? No, no. Um, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure their their menu will feature um, you know hot dogs and McDonald's Happy Meals in, in honor of uh, <laughs> of global inequality. But um, the uh, so the 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 issue uh, that Oxfam raised was that um, according to the numbers they crunched, uh, the the world's 85 wealthiest individuals now collectively hold about as much wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion. So um, let's just chew on that statistic for a while, shall we? I mean, like, it, it really needs, you know, no further description. But, uh, I mean, you know, uh, that old adage, you know, how, how the other half lives, we don't really understand. I mean, this is, we're, we're well beyond the other half, right? This is sort of like a teeny tiny percentage of the top income earners um, now, you know, enjoying vastly more wealth, uh, well, levels of wealth that, that not anyone can really fathom uh, in, that, in that bottom half of the population. Um, other statistics from that report, uh, seven out of 10 people live in countries where economic inequality has actually increased over the past 30 years. Um, in 24 out of the 26 countries, um, the top 1% increased their share of income from 1980 to 2012. And in the U.S. in particular, since the financial crisis in 2009, uh, the bottom 90% has become poorer, while the top 1% has captured 95% of the growth that's been experienced in the so-called recovery. So, uh, And that's actually part of a much broader trend that predates the recession. Wages have pretty much been stagnant slash declining for much of the population since the 1970s. Um, Oxfam uh, concludes in its report that global inequality needs to become a global policy priority, um, not only because it leads to you know, huge levels of misery throughout the population, but because this is just bad for democracy. It's bad for civil society. Um, quote from the report, a concentration of wealth in the hands in, of the few leads to undue political influence, which ultimately robs citizens of natural resource revenues, produces unfair tax policies, uh, policies and encourages corrupt practices and challenges the regulatory powers of governments. Um, these all work to worsen accountability and social inclusion. Um, and one survey that Oxfam did in the U.S. revealed that actually two-thirds of Americans think Congress passes laws that predominantly benefit the wealthy only. So, um, and of course that makes sense given how many millionaires there are in our Congress currently. Um, so, right, I mean, the report has some pretty basic common sense uh, proposals for solutions, such as a more progressive tax policy, living wage laws, uh, eliminating tax loopholes and tax havens that favor uh, the extremely wealthy, um, along with, you know, reducing discrimination and inequality in the workforce and strengthening labor rights. Um, but of course, we knew all this, and I'm sure the ultra wealthy knew it. On on some level as well. It's just a matter of them being uh, persuaded, coerced, uh, cajoled, or just, you know, um, forced to take action on this. And so that, that is what behooves the $3.5 billion. So this week, the Supreme Court is hearing a very important case. It got to put the rights of public workers' unions on trial with a potentially historic case that challenges union rules for home health care workers in Illinois. It's called Harris v. Quinn. Um, and it might overturn longstanding legal precedents about mandatory union membership for government workers. Um, it also reflects a rather dangerous movement across the states to push so-called right-to-work policies, which are supposed to protect workers uh, against their right to unionize. 
um, right to work, by the way, is, um, you know, the, uh, that, that, that's in scare quotes, by the way. Um, uh, right to work policies are those that uh, seek to end workplace-wide uh, unionization. So it allows basically um, people to opt out of union dues, even if a union uh, has responsibility for collectively bargaining on behalf of all the workers in that union. So it might lead to uh, what we might call uh, freeloaders or free riders um, who benefit from all of the uh, negotiated for benefits and yet do not actually contribute to the functioning of the union. Needless to say, this is clearly aimed at undermining the power of unions and, uh, you know, union busting um, uh, in the favor of big business. So um, our special guests today are two labor historians who filed an important amicus brief in this case. Um, they are Lane Boris um, and Jennifer Klein. And so they're going to be joining us uh, from uh, California and Connecticut, respectively. And we begin with Eileen Boris. She is whole chair at the Department of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So uh, welcome, Professor Boris. Well, thank you for having us. So let's start with an overview of the facts of the case. Um, basically, this lawsuit was brought uh, by a group of home care workers who were backed by an anti-union lobbying group. And uh, supposedly they uh, reject any form of unionization at their workplaces. And they argue that this unionization at their workplace um, constitutes a violation of their constitutional rights. Um, even when the unions representing those workers, in this case SEIU and um, AFSCME, are in charge of negotiating their labor contract, which involves services delivered as part of a publicly subsidized healthcare system. So the question before the court might seem kind of straightforward to workers who are not in a union. You know, why should anyone doing work in a private home be forced to join a government workers union? But tell us what is really behind this constitutional argument and the idea that uh, these workers are being unfairly treated by the unions. Okay. There's two very important threads going on here. First, the challenge by the National Right to Work Legal Defense Team is part of a larger anti-union, we might say radical right, attempt to destroy trade unions, and through destroying trade unions, destroy the mobilizing basis of the Democratic Party as well. It goes back, so I'm going to first talk about this, it goes back to 1947 with the Taft-Hartley Act, which under Taft-Hartley, you could no longer have what was called a closed shop. You couldn't force a someone who worked for an employer to be a member of the union. But you could have a union shop, which meant that somebody who was covered by collective bargaining but was a non-union member would pay a portion of, would pay a fee that would be less than union, a union fee to cover the collective bargaining aspect. And over the years, that was narrowed so no political action of the union could be uh, financed through these non-union members' fees. But collective bargaining could be. Because after all, the, these other people would be free riders. They, would, they gained from uh, the, the, what the unions won in negotiation with employers. This... Uh, so, so there has been an assault on the union idea by this notion of right to work since the 1950s. However, as private sector unionism dropped the percentage uh, and public sector unionism grew, now these anti-union forces are attempting to destroy the most viable aspect of trade unionism, the public sector unions. We saw that at Wisconsin, and we're now seeing it through these challenges. 
So that's the first thread. And I, I should add, the public sector unions didn't really get a right to um, exist uh, uh, until the last um, 50 or so years. So that's been the rising uh, area of trade unionism, and it's been one that's been dominated in terms of its members by women and men and women of color. Mm -hmm. so, so this particular case, which uh, Justice Kagan yesterday said is, a, is, she said to the lawyer of the National Right to Work lawyer, what strikes me in this, and I'm going to use the word here, it is a radical argument. That's her words. It would radically restructure the way workplaces across the country are run. So it's really an attempt to get rid of trade unions by making by making them financially uh, putting out all this effort and yet uh, cutting off uh, these fees because if you don't have to be a member to get all the benefits of the union, why should you pay? Everyone can use more money in their uh, pockets, so that's the logical conclusion, and the, the public sector unions are required. The law requires the unions to represent everybody in the workplace. So, okay, so that's one. So it's pure anti-trade unionism. The, the, and it's and getting rid of the most powerful sector of trade unionism today. But it's being done through an, a very disingenuous, I would argue, uh, appeal to affect, to our emotions. And that's where the home care workers come in. Because the argument goes, here is big, bad trade unions and big, bad government entering a personal relationship. As one of the uh, amicus uh, for the plaintiffs put it, uh, the Anti-Union Illinois Public uh, Policy Foundation, uh, about one, one of the um, plaintiffs. She's a mom. She's just taking care of her, kid, her child, who happens to be severely disabled. Uh, what right you know, does a union have to come in and interfere, or, or big government to come in to interfere? And... But she isn't just a mom, is she? She is being paid as a worker to do a job. Because if I take care of a family member, if you take care of a family member, we're not paid to do that. And yet there's this conflation between what, between our notions of what family members are supposed to do for each other, that somehow that care work isn't real work. And so there is a bet that these workers, that we will see them as not workers, but as mothers or as caregivers. So we've seen a whole lot of this, um, these attacks on unions, especially um, public sector unions, especially these kinds of right to work ballot measures and and. Um, bills. Bills, yes, thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and who is behind it and how those people are involved in this case? Sure. Uh, this is very well-funded. I mean, you know, name your favorite radical right people, you know, Coach Brothers, and the, et cetera. But we have here the National Right to Work. Um, Legal Defense Foundation, we have the Cato Institute, mm -hmm. we have the Pacific Institute. There's a whole, it's a who's who of um, the people who file these amicus briefs. Uh, uh, there's, there's the uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy, the Pacific Legal Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, and they're all being supported by these wealthy individuals who are anti-union against the union idea. What makes um, home care a softer target legally 
is that the state is a joint employer because it doesn't directly hire or uh, supervise on a day-to-day intimate basis or fire the uh, provider of care. Uh, That is because of the social struggles and and the preferences uh, of the uh, senior citizens and of the disability rights movement who... uh, wanted consumer-directed care, but individual consumers, as they're called, individual receivers of care, cannot uh, negotiate, just like an individual worker cannot negotiate, on the big macro questions, on the labor market questions that are involved with this. So you have uh, workers that people aren't quite sure whether they're really workers, because of their gender, their race, they're disproportionately women of color, uh, because of their family status, and because of this joint employment relationship uh, Mm -hmm. being used then by these radical right groups to upend trade unionism, and in this case, public employee unionism. Um, on this, uh, you know, public versus private divide in, you know, the household versus the workplace, um, can you describe the history of uh, or labor organizing in this sector in particular, um, home care, domestic work, et cetera? Because, you know, while it may seem from the this particular court case that the idea of a union supposedly intruding on this sacrosanct relationship between the healthcare yeah. consumer and the healthcare in-home healthcare worker seems to be some sort of novel phenomenon. There's actually quite a history of organizing within this sector, even for workers who are based in the home. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Uh, this is the history that uh, Jennifer Klein and I uh, narrate in Caring for America, a book on home health workers in the shadow of the welfare state. And it has been a struggle for dignity and recognition, but it is a struggle of collective action that is over, that is really begins in the 1960s as so much public employee union struggles. And home health care workers were created, it's an occupation created by the state to begin with. This didn't really exist before the New Deal. And it's through public policy uh, that the job, the home health aid or the personal assistant came into being through public funding. And initially, many of these workers were connected to departments of uh, welfare in cities or in uh, individual states. And in the 1960s, when welfare departments, when the social workers, the caseworkers, uh, all the employees, including the the home health workers, who at that time were called homemakers, had big strikes in the 1960s in, like, New York City. Uh, The home health workers were members of those unions, the social service uh, employee unions. Uh, uh, Some of them were independent, and some of them were connected to AFSCME. And in California, in that time, some of them became connected with SEIU early on. So, and so they, but what happens with home care is that, that because of the rising demand and the way we structure old age care, uh, the, the, the way that long-term care got structured to Medicaid, the, co- the cost of long-term care, that states ended up contracting out some of this work. And uh, to uh, either private nonprofits, uh, first public nonprofits, and then pro- uh, for-profit entities, and they also um, dis- designated some of these workers independent contractors. And it's been a struggle then, since the 1970s, since the reaction of some of these states to the very unionization that these workers engaged in, to get reunionized and re-recognized as, in essence. Workers who are paid by the state because the funding comes through government 
and government decides uh, how many hours a particular uh, recipient would get in many of these uh, systems. The government is so, it's been a long struggle that home care workers and the people they care for have joined together to demand that this is the way that they want long-term care workers to be recognized and um, that the state is a real employer. So we're now being joined as well by Jennifer Klein, who is a professor of history at Yale and the other author of Caring for America with Eileen. Um, And I think, Jen, were you going to pick up on the organizing story for us? Um, Yes. So workers were organizing uh, quite directly as public sector workers as part of the big upheaval in the 1960s um, that organized unions like AFSCME, and they also took some other trajectories towards organizing unions. They organized through the um, offshoot of the United Farm Workers, the United Domestic Workers of America on the West Coast. And they, um, this was, you know, um, in the 1980s, and they also organized through um, hospital workers and nursing home workers. So it was always clear to people that they were part of a kind of continuum of low-wage workers who connected different kinds of care work, work that could be done in institutional settings like nursing homes or hospitals, work that was done at home perhaps, you know, uh, at night or on the weekends, and that these women often move between these sectors. And so you see a number of different unions that were uh, jumping in and figuring out how to be um, organizing the workers in this sector. The amicus brief that the two of you submitted to the court in this case, um, you point out that the petitioners in this case argue that, you know, essentially that this is not real work because these people are doing work that they would have done without pay. Um, And I feel like this gets at a really, really core issue about care work that Eileen brought up a little bit that I would love for both of you to elaborate on a little bit. The idea that this should be done for love and therefore asking for money or requiring money for it in any way is sort of bad or makes you a bad person or is impersonal or is, you know, big government interfering in your personal life? Well, it's interesting that they would uh, would take that position because actually if you go back to the origins of home care, specifically in the 1930s, it starts as a work relief program. And the whole idea was to put people back to work and put people into paid employment. And so, uh, you know, throughout each of the decades that these home care programs grew, whether they were helping people who were ill or in the hospital who had young children or whether it was serving the elderly or the disabled, um, the, the people who organized the service always saw it as paid employment for poor women who were out of work. And it's it's also important to realize there's another aspect of sleight of hand going on here, and that is the being concerned with the characteristics of the workers rather than the nature of the work, because the association of domestic labor with uh, African Americans, with slavery, on one hand, and with dirt and intimacy on the other hand, makes people want to think it's a different kind of work. But what you have here is a location, the home, that we have all sorts of ideological notions about. But the work that is done is very similar, as Jen emphasized, when uh, with hospitals, with uh, nursing homes, with other institutional locations, and that what is unique about home care is that it is a service that is meeting the desires of everybody involved to work, to, to, to have jobs on one hand, and for people to stay and age in place or to avoid institutionalization. But it has been 
long-term care on the cheap because of paying the workers less. And that's where unions have made a tremendous difference. Mm -hmm. So I think you can see um, quite directly in the argument that the anti-labor conservatives are using now is they really are using the ambiguity of the home and try to obscure the home as a place where waged labor takes place and to assume that not only is the home private, but it's not a realm that the market penetrates. And yet, not only has it done so since slavery, but waged labor has taken place in the home for a very long time. And so they're they're really trying to obscure that, um, and as well as these seemingly domestic tax, tasks in order to discredit the notion that there should be unionism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one other aspect um, that I think is important to realize, that the legal foundations, these uh, right-to-work legal foundations, are also obscuring the relationship of uh, these workers to the state by calling them citizens and recipients of, of state uh, monies rather than acknowledging them as employees. And this is the other conflation that goes on uh, in this case. Uh, they say that they're citizens whose right to free expression, because they think that the, the, that First Amendment cases are going to fly very well with uh, the majority of the justices, rather than looking at it as a labor law case. Uh, to say that somehow their free expression that there is being interfered with and that all these unions do is lobby the state. So it's a misunderstanding of the legitimacy of public employee unions to begin with. And it's also a conflation of the Medicaid monies, because there was a long discussion in the arguments yesterday. Medicaid is a public... Uh, it is a program, it is a state and federal program, and somehow the uh, the lawyers for the right-to-work lawyers want us to think that people are just getting Medicaid checks rather than getting uh, wages, getting paychecks. Right. And I think that's a really important point because um, the issue of Medicaid funding here has long been um, sort of a, a legal um, uh, contested legal space um, in all sorts of civil rights cases and labor rights right. cases because it gives, essentially it gives the state a central stake in the uh, working conditions of these employees despite all these sort of insidious efforts to distort the uh, relationship between the consumer of care and the caregiver as an employee-employer empl- relationship, which it you know, clearly isn't, um, according to your uh, amicus brief and, and that filed by uh, by the others in this case. So, um, on that note, I mean, can you can you elaborate a little bit uh, on the um, the issue of public sector unionism in this context? What might happen to the uh, power of public sector unions and their relationship um, with respect to the state? Um, as a collective bargaining entity if um, the right-to-work advocates uh, prevail in this case? Well, I think, first of all, we should should acknowledge that uh, public sector workers, by necessity, have collective bargaining demands that involve government. And so we have a model of unionism that we have kind of pushed forward as the only way in which a union functions, and it's based on private industry and negotiating with, you know, a private employer. And we try to act as that that is the only way in which unionism works. And anything outside of that is political in a very pejorative sense. And yet public sector workers who are employees who face all the similar kinds of conditions of work that any other set of employees do um, have to deal with the government because 
those are the programs that they're making work. And we have to recognize that, you know, so much of service labor that makes our, our economy run today are human services that are in some way connected to public programs. And so if you go all the way back to the 1920s, public sector unions have always had to act politically in the way that they negotiate with the government by its nature. But just because any collective bargaining agreement involving public employees will involve expenditures of money doesn't mean that that makes it a constitutional issue, which the um, the right to work people are trying to say. They're trying to turn this into a First Amendment issue rather than um, a bargaining issue. And so what they're trying to do is, again, take home care work, which takes place in this allegedly private realm of the home, cast it as private and not public, and then use that as a wedge to undermine the collective bargaining rights of all public sector workers. And that's why this is a very um, damaging, potentially damaging case. And one of the things that I thought was um, uh, revealing when you look at the transcript from the oral arguments is all of the provocative, if not hostile, questions that came from the conservative justices used teachers' unions as their foil. Mm -hmm. And so they've really tapped into this whole conservative effort to discredit teachers and all of the venom that's been dumped on teachers who actually defend our public education system as their foil in this case. And then they also use the example of, oh, public workers' pensions, you know, which they claim are, you know, going to um, somehow bankrupt the state. And so this case is clearly being used as a political referendum on public sector workers' rights. Mm -hmm. yes. If I can just um, bump in, uh, enter in for a minute. The one reason they're using teachers is that the precedent case is uh, Abhood. And Abhood uh, was about teacher unionism and fair share for teacher unionism. So it's the precedent that allows for this um, uh, exclusive representation by a democratically chosen uh public employee local. But it's all connected, as Jennifer uh, mentioned. But that's one reason why they're using the teachers' cases over and over again. And actually, uh, the lawyer for the uh, right-to-work people admitted that he want, what they want to do is um, strike down this um, precedent and uh, make it impossible for uh, home for public employees to have um, collective bargaining, to have real unions, uh, the question will be, will the court decide that really is too radical, but will they make a distinction between policemen, as they did in Wisconsin, and teachers? Will they say the line for home care is uh, such that that is political, and somehow other forms of public employment are not. Mm. And that's what I think we have to watch with, right. with the court. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that issue of these uh, seemingly arbitrary lines that are drawn across different uh, um, uh, divisions of the public sector, um, you know, pitting, say, policemen and firemen, uh, of course, I'm using those gender terms for a reason, mm -hmm. against teachers and home care workers. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, some of these ideas that you explore in your work about the gendered nature of some of these public sectors that are coming under attack? Um, since you drew the parallel between uh, health care aides and teachers, who are, you know, are generally known as uh, more uh, women-oriented um, occupations in terms of who they employ. Uh, talk about who does these jobs and how some of these uh, gender stereotypes and um, gender discrimination factors into how the politics play out around public sector unionism. Well, first of all, just look at who um, Governor Walker went after in Wisconsin. Yeah. It was teachers, social workers, counselors, hospital workers, home care workers, and child care workers. 
occupations that are dominated by women and then also take care of people who are either children or are ill or are elderly and is not seen as somehow you know, creating surplus value for the economy. And so it was, I think, you know, a just profoundly sexist move. I mean, not only is it, a, a, you know, a deeply anti-labor move to you know, strip them of their rights, but it was a clearly sexist move. And, and these are the growing sectors of the economy. This is the work that women are doing. And so to, you know, take away the bargaining rights in these sectors where more jobs uh, are growing. It's it's actually a, you know it it really hits at the employment rights that women worked so long to to win because they had been excluded initially from much of the New Deal labor law in the 1930s from the NLRA or the National Labor Relations Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act because the kinds of sectors that they worked in were not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so they, you know, it took them decades to win those standard rights of employment that men, say, in manufacturing had um, had earned decades before. And, and the last point that I can make uh, I have to leave, uh, is that uh, home care workers now represent the new face of labor. It's been one of the areas where the movement has been in the labor movement. So it is the area that we looked at and we have celebrated as the revitalization of labor because of the self-activity of poor women, often poor women of color. Uh, and doing the labor that makes the rest of us able to go out and to function in the world. And so striking at their rights is striking at all of our rights. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you see the, the unions that they've created, they are, are incredibly uh, multi-ethnic unions. Right. The, in California, you're looking at unions that have um, people from China, people from all over Asia, from the Philippines, uh, from all over Latin America, from Eastern Europe. Unions, just in general, are about the most um, integrated institutions we have in our society. But in particular, these really became enfranchising unions, enfranchising institutions for African-American women, for Caribbean women, and for um, and for immigrants. So on the West Coast, you have the groups I talked about. On the East Coast, um, it was African-Americans and Caribbeans and Africans. And in Illinois, the union that was built was built by African-American women. I mean, it's a really a powerful movement for them that turned them not only into people who made a better wage, but also into really engaged political citizens. Um, and that's what's so threatening. That's what's so threatening. Right. And that's why they're playing the welfare card as well. Yep. Because if you look at the attacks on uh, teachers, on nurses, and now home care workers, yeah. they're saying because they're public employees, that they're, they're the new welfare queens. Right. And, and ironically, so the fact that they're... using an asset card right. that is to... that association we might have between black women, between welfare, and public employment. And somehow the, those are being used to delegitimize a larger social good. Right, and and the fact that they these are um, funded by Medicaid is another crucial issue too, because that's um, that's right. another aspect okay. of uh, public services and and public subsidy uh, that is also constantly under attack. And um, just so we don't let the feds off the hook here, I, I think it's important to, to let's just add here that a, a very much related um, labor regulatory issue is the companionship exemption, which I know that you two have written about extensively. Can you talk a little bit? about this exemption um, until very recently uh, the federal government, you know, had failed to change this for years and years, but um, this idea of um, home care workers in many cases being uh, excluded from core federal labor protections under this so-called companionship exemption. Uh, can, you, can you elaborate on that a little? 
you know, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act passed in 1938 had initially left out domestic work um, on the grounds that, one, they couldn't penetrate the home and regulate the home, but also that um, uh, that um, this was not interstate commerce. But we saw, you know, over the decades, the Fair Labor Standards Act was amended finally to bring in new groups of workers, and in 19... 19- 74, Congress amended the Fair Labor Standards Act to finally bring in domestic workers. And when the Department of Labor went to put this into effect in 1975, it ruled that home care aides would not actually be included in this. Even home care aides who actually worked for an agency, who were not hired individually by a family, but in fact worked for an agency and were sent into the home. And what they did was they renamed them companions. And they said, well, just like there's a casual babysitter who comes in next door, (laughs) there's a companion who comes and sits. And so first of all, they act as though these women were just casual workers rather than breadwinners who had to earn a living for their family. And secondly, again, um, devalued the labor and acted as though it's not real work. It's just simply coming in and sitting and keeping somebody company. And ever since the mid-1970s, home care agencies and, you know, which becomes a huge for-profit industry after the 1980s, would invoke this companionship exemption to avoid paying minimum wage or overtime compensation to these workers. And then they would try to say, well, this is this has always been there. This is tradition. But in fact, that term companion never existed or really was not used until it was put in there in 1975 at precisely the moment that this was beginning to take off as a big industry, at precisely the moment that um, we were beginning to shift away from institutionalization to community-based care and home care. And several times, workers tried to organize to change this ruling and to get themselves included in uh, the coverage for overtime compensation. And each time, it would be delayed, and it would be and it would be postponed. And employers would get away with invoking this notion that, oh well. Um, their their companions, which would make people think they're just coming in. But the other thing that they would do, which is, you know, a scare tactic that's quite effective, is to set up this zero-sum equation that only through cheap labor can people have access to care. And if you raise wages, then people will get less access to care. And so even when this case came before the Supreme Court in 2007, Justice Breyer and said, and said, well, how will millions of people be able to afford care if we actually had to abide by labor standards? And so it makes people think that we can, we can only set these, these workers off against consumers, when in fact what happens is, is if you devalue the labor, yep. and we're talking just tasks of daily living, helping people get out of bed, helping them bathe, helping them eat their food and do their laundry. If you devalue that labor, then when, for example, we hit a fiscal crisis of the state, that's easier to cut. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. Better care and better wages and, and more access to it are linked together. Yeah. And that's why at the most effective moments, you've actually seen unions work in conjunction with disability rights groups and senior citizens. That, that shows that we need to understand the way in which unionization and collective bargaining work slightly differently in this sector. And these right-to-work people are trying to use all kinds of um, uh, misrepresentations to make us not see that. And I think Another thing that I'd like to put in here is um, the state of Illinois is trying to say we've actually chosen to work in partnership with a union, which is surprising in this in this era, right? To yeah. actually hear an employer say we we see a benefit yeah. of unionization, yeah. 
And so as the state of Illinois, we've decided to work in conjunction with the union to provide greater stability and security for both the clients and the workers, mm-hmm. and that we get tangible benefits from this yeah. um, related to morale, related to recruitment, related to retention and reducing turnover. And what the right-to-work people are trying to say, oh, no, 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 you you know, uh, that, that's not, that's not part of this, you know, because really, again, it's just a Medicaid program and people are getting their benefits. Right. And what that does is it acts again, like this is not an actual labor force. Right. Yeah. These are just individual people who legitimately or perhaps illegitimately are getting these welfare benefits. When in fact, what this is, is a paid labor market. This is a labor force. It's a vast labor force and it's a providing an essential service. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Molly Neffel wrote this wonderful line in a piece about after school programs. And she said the money that we something like the money that we spend on the people who care for our children shows us what we think of our children. And that sort of, you know, extrapolates very well to this case. Right. What we think about people with disabilities shows in what we decide to spend on the people who care for them, what we think about the elderly we can see in what we choose to spend on the people who care for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, these, they're taking care of the most important people in our lives. Right. Um, and the right to work people, one of the things they also criticized was that the state had agreed to pay into a union health care fund in mm-hmm. order to offer access to health care for the workers. Right. Now, do we want the people who are caring for, you know, the people who are most important in our lives to be ill? (laughs) Do we want them not to have health care? You would think that the right, you know, the conservatives who claim to support federalism and the prerogatives of the state um, and states' rights, um, suddenly here's the state making a set of decisions and uh, and they're trying to discredit it because in this case, it actually benefits workers. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to add on that. I reported on a story back when I was covering the paid sick days fight here in New York of a woman whose home health care aide, who was taking care of her sick parents, um, came to work sick because she had no paid sick time and had no health care, and the, brought in the flu, and this woman's father got sick and died. That's you know, it's deeply wow. important to make sure these people have the people who are, you know, caring for people who are already not necessarily healthy, are able to take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just ask, sort of to wrap up, I really love the title of the book that the two of you wrote, um, Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of the Welfare State, because it so seems that like the history of these workers organizing sort of has gone along with the dismantling of the welfare state um, and the way these workers play into that sort of tattered safety net that we still have um, is really fascinating. Can you just talk a little bit about where they fit into our healthcare system? I mean, the, the workers that are allowed to organize are ones who are getting state Medicaid payments from the state, right? Yes. Um, and, well, first of all, we, we tend to think of the welfare state in terms of um, benefits that it pays out or cash benefits that it pays out, or even services that it provides. But we have to keep in mind that um, it actually requires a workforce to carry out those services. And so the state played a very significant role in creating and shaping this workforce. But because they were poor women of color who often started off on public assistance, and were being moved into wage work, they were very much kept in the shadows. And the service started out much more oriented towards women who had young children, and if these women were incapacitated, then a home care worker would come in to help support the children and do the work. But I would say after the 1960s, it increasingly becomes a service to support the disabled and also the um, the elderly. And after 1980, when Medicare changes its rules and people have to start leaving the hospital much earlier and um, and you know still recovering, it really becomes a key part of the healthcare sector. 
And we have to see that our healthcare sector is a mix of public and private. Americans are often pretty, um, <laughs> pretty you know, unclear about this fact about what is public and private. But we have a vast medical sector, and the, the reality is, it, these workers are essential to the medical sector that is both public and private. And as they began to unionize, because they were being paid through these public programs, they did begin to act politically. And the union gave them a way of having a collective voice, of improving their standard of living and their standard of pay, but also the access to services for the consumers. And so they started talking about how they were moving out of the shadows and using the phrase, we're invisible no more. And so if you look at some of the photos from the marches they were doing in the 1990s as they began to organize through SEIU, they would actually carry signs that say, we're invisible no more. And that that really is a crucial part of the story. These are workers who did labor that was once considered kind of on the margins of the economy, but it is now labor that is essential to how our economy and how our polity works. That was Eileen Boris, who is a professor of feminist studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Jennifer Klein, professor of history at Yale, who are the authors together of Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of the Welfare State. We will put a link to much of their work and to their book on the Descent Magazine website. Now is the time of the show, whereas every week we say, ARG. I wish I'd written that. Michelle, what did you wish you had written this week? So my ARG uh, came in the form of a piece about mass hysteria of a sort um, in the New York Times. Um, And it's about uh, this strange phenomenon of workers suddenly fainting in unison um, in Cambodia. And uh, you know, for the past few years, that there many have remarked on this uh, sort of epidemic of mass faintings in Cambodian garment factories. And um, Julia Wallace wrote a very interesting piece that looks at the various psychological, social, um, environmental, and labor factors that have been blamed for this mass fainting. And uh, I think it's a really fascinating look at uh, you know how the workplace is where all these different social malaises kind of come together, and while it may be very difficult to parse the exact uh, cause of what is um, provoking these people to faint en masse, um, seemingly on cue or in unison with each other, it's important to remember that whether the effects are psychological or they are due to chemical contamination, or they're due to malnourishment, which is another issue that many have blamed for uh, the, the mistreatment of workers. It's very difficult to narrow down the exact cause, but all of these things seem to work together. Um, and she also notes these very interesting issues that have come up throughout history, actually, of uh, very supernatural and kind of spiritual um, collective events that have taken place in industrial workplaces when um, people who um, have just recently been exposed to industrial capitalism have shown these sort of mass uh, psychotic effects. Um, it is important to know note that, you know, while many people say this is due to psychological causes, that, you know, these are not really, these can't really be called staged events. Um, There are definitely um, health and uh, mental health reasons that are legitimate that seem to be leading to these mass faintings. But she notes here... um, this interesting psychological element. So uh, Wallace goes on to write, um, in other times and places, ethnographers have noted seemingly magical manifestations when indigenous populations first confront industrial capitalism. As the manufacture of linen intensified in northern Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, household spirits began to appear in textile workshops in a more malevolent form. 
Um, and uh, another anthropologist, Michael Tausig, uh, wrote about Colombian peasants who were newly incorporated into wage labor on sugarcane plantations in the 1970s and reportedly sold their souls to the devil to con- increase their productivity. And so while we, <laughs> we in the secular rational world might, um, you know, call this hocus pocus, um, it's important to remember that what is real for the uh, workers themselves is the lived experience of the suffering um, that is induced by industrial capitalism. And whether that leads to mass faintings or the supposed sightings of ghosts or whatever, it's a real statement, I think, on the effects of capitalism and of industrial exploitation, not only on the bodies of workers, but on their spirits as well. Um, And, you know, there's... um, there's a kind of mythology around the uh, the ghosts in the machine or the soul of the machine. And I think this rather uh, beautifully kind of captures the, the, the real tragedy of that as it unfolds in these Cambodian sweatshops. Um, and so that is uh, in the New York Times, and we'll have a link to it on our site. Speaking of the soul and the workplace, the story that I am just fascinated by this week is a story from the CBC about... United Church Ministers in Ontario who have joined Canada's largest private sector union. The clergy have launched Unifaith, which is a community chapter of Unifor. And I find this a really, really fascinating story for a lot of reasons. But one of them is is deeply related to both what Michelle was just talking about, um, the effects of sort of capitalism on the soul, but also what we were talking about in terms of care work. Um, clergy are responsible for ministering to and caring for other people, for their congregation. Um, They do emotional labor. Um, The quote here from Reverend Jim Evans, who is the interim president of the new clergy union, says, a large number of colleagues are are aware of issues of workplace bullying, isolation, and desolation for those serving in their vocation. This has been an ongoing concern for us for many years now. And this is, you know, they've been dealing with these issues on their own. They've been dealing with these issues within the institutional church. And he says, they could pray for us, but in terms of providing effective, approved accountability to uphold the values and policies of safety and job security and protecting us from workplace violence and harassment, it was very limited. So now, clergy of the world unite. Again, this is just such a fascinating facet of the labor that is done by the people of the church. To be in solidarity with our clergy brothers and sisters is an opportunity for us to do something that is going to change those realities, says Evans. Um, So, you know, the the church has a, or, well, several different churches, we should say, right, have very mixed relationships to the labor movement. And, of course, the church lately i mean this is not the catholic church right well yes both right um but this is an acknowledgement of the kind of labor that is being done here that i think is really interesting when you're talking about this work as a vocation if it is a calling um then you're supposed to sort of put up with all of the negative consequences of it when you think of it as work perhaps care work, perhaps spiritual work, but work nonetheless that comes with its own sides of harassment and desolation and, and, you know, just hating your job sometimes like all of us do, then a union becomes a really logical choice. Um, Again, this is a story from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and we will also put a link to that at the Descent Magazine website. Mm -hmm. We will put links to everything we talked about on this week's podcast on the Descent website. You can tweet us at the belabored hashtag. And you can also email us now at our brand spanking new Descent Magazine email. It's belabored at descentmagazine.org. And with that, we would love to hear from you, your reactions on this week's show. If you are a home care worker, if you are a New Orleans teacher, a fast food worker, any other worker with a story to tell us, we would love if to you hear from you. If you are a pro-union clergy member, we want if to hear from you If you are a too. member of the clergy union, I would love to talk to you. We will be back next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I-